Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles or turn on your Bible, if that's what the situation may be, and turn in them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair near you, in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 166, and you would be at 2 Timothy chapter 2. The first of the month, I had an opportunity to speak at the Dallas Theological Seminary Chapel to the students and the faculty, and when I actually got up to speak, it hit me that the last time I had been in a service in Chafer Chapel there, this May, would have been 35 years. And uh, I was thinking about that later, particularly as I was thinking through our traction series that we're doing on 2 Timothy and how in chapters 1 and 2, the emphasis is on spiritual steadfastness. And I was thinking about some of my classmates. You know, we all started on the same spiritual track. But some of my classmates in those 35 years took a spiritual detour. There was a spiritual crash or a spiritual collapse. And all of us, 35 years ago, I mean, all of us were flawed. All of us have lived less than perfect spiritual lives. We've all made unwise choices. We've all had plenty to repent from and to confess to God, but some of my classmates made a series of wrong choices. It may have been wrong choices related to their marriage. It may have been wrong choices related to their ministry. It may be it was wrong choices, a series of them related to their family, but somewhere along the way over these years, they veered off course. A few weeks ago, we talked about the 1 in 10 ratio that John Bassano had observed in his life when he tracked people from the age of 21 to the age of 65 to see if they were still fervently following Christ. And he said only one out of 10 were. And I was thinking about uh, over my classmates, I would say the ratio is way higher than one out of 10. But the key, the spiritual steadfastness is making right choices. And that's exactly what Paul is laying before us in the second half of chapter 2. He's going to stress that we need to make right choices. I want you to look at verse 14 of chapter 2. He begins this section by saying, remind them of these things. What are the these things? Well, it's what he's covered earlier on in the chapter. He says, remind them to learn from the spiritual life analogies. Remind them of the analogy of being a soldier who has his focus on the commander. The spiritual analogy of being an athlete who is dedicated to the code. The analogy of being a farmer who has diligence with the end of the crop coming in mind. When he says, remind them of these things, he means what we saw in the previous verses, that if we died with him, we're going to live with him. We have a future beyond suffering, that if we endure, we will reign with him. 
There is a future reward in the kingdom if we endure in this life. If we deny him, he will deny us. He will deny us reward. He will deny us the privilege of ruling with him in the kingdom. But if we are faithless, this is so encouraging in verse 13, he remains faithful. He will be forever faithful to us no matter how much we may mess up. He is never going to let go of us. And when he says there in verse 14, remind them of these things, he does it in the original language saying this needs to be repeated over and over again. And that's the way truth is, men and women. Truth is worthy of reminders. And the reason why we need reminders is we have this tendency to drift. We have this tendency to lose sight of truth. So remind them of these things, he says, regarding the previous part of chapter 2. But then he goes on to say this in verse 14. And solemnly charge them in the presence of God. Now we just have this sense when we read that phrase that there's some serious stuff coming next. There's some stuff that we need to have clear thinking about. And Paul often introduces things this way. I want you to go previously to 1 Timothy and look at chapter 5 and verse 21. He says there, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. I mean, you hear that and you know something important is coming. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 13. He says there, I charge you in the presence of God. Again, we get this idea that something important is getting ready to come. And then back in 2 Timothy, if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So when he gives us this statement in chapter 2, something important, pivotal is coming our way. Remind them of these things, keep reminding them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God. I mean, ultimately, it's all about honoring and glorifying God. And what he's going to say to us in the rest of the verses of this chapter is, I am basically solemnly charging them in the presence of God to make right choices. That's the thrust. And we're going to see three right choices he's going to emphasize. There's one in verses 14 to 19a. There's a second one in verses 19b to verse 22. And there's a third right choice we are to make in verses 23 to 26. If we're going to steer clear of spiritual catastrophe, if we're going to be spiritually steadfast, we must make right choices. And the first right choice he's going to emphasize is that we choose to be a diligent workman. That we choose to be a diligent workman. Look again at verse 14. I solemnly charge them, you need to solemnly charge them, Timothy, in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present 
present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who've gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Now, here is today's plan. We're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to look at the issue, and then we're going to look at the right choice. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the issue because we cannot really understand the right choice that we're being exhorted to make without understanding the issue. So let's look at the issue. And the issue was that there are truth distorters out there in the world, outside of the church, and inside of the church. I want you to keep your finger in 2 Timothy 2 and turn with me several books to the left in your Bible to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And we're going to look toward the end of that chapter. Now in Acts chapter 20, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders. You remember that Timothy is at Ephesus. He's meeting with the Ephesian elders and he makes a prediction in Acts chapter 20. He says in verse 28 to the elders, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the job of the elders and the overseers to shepherd the church. But he goes on to say in verse 29, I know that after my departure, when, when I'm leaving the area, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And, verse 30, from among your own selves, from right inside the church, will arise individuals speaking perverse things. What's their goal? To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be on the alert. There are truth distorters out there is what he was predicting. Now, I want to go back towards 2 Timothy, but I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter number 6. This is the first letter that Paul writes to Timothy, who is now in Ephesus. And I want you to see what he has to say beginning in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 6. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, a a teaching that is different from the normal, straightforward teaching of the Bible, somebody who offers teaching that does not agree with sound words, that is not in line with sound teaching, it is doctrine that doesn't conform to godliness. In other words, it's teaching that doesn't produce a truly godly life. He's basically saying those are truth distorters that are out there. They are distorting the truth. 
And you can learn some things about these truth distorters. In verse 4, he says they're conceited, they're arrogant, they have an inflated opinion of themselves, they're pretty cocky. They come across as they are the ones who have the deeper insights. They are the ones who truly are in the spiritual know. They act like they know, Paul says, but actually the opposite is true. We learn also that they are divisive. They have an unhealthy interest, a morbid interest in controversial questions. They, they crave, they, they thrive on controversy. They're involved with disputes about words. They're into spiritual word battles, spiritual quibbling, what I like to call pseudo-intellectual wrangling. And this pseudo-intellectual wrangling leads to strife and it leads to friction. See, Paul said there are going to be truth distorters who will come along after I leave. He made that prediction. We look at the first letter to Timothy in Ephesus, and they're there. Now when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2, it is still a concern, these truth distorters. And he's going to address truth distorters on two levels, I believe, in chapter 2. And the first level is that of destructive doctrine. Destructive doctrine. Notice in verse 17, he says, among these truth distorters are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. There are truth distorters, and he says, among those truth distorters are a guy by the name of Hymenaeus and a guy by the name of Philetus. And we learn, by going back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20, that he'd already dealt with this Hymenaeus guy. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Hymenaeus and Alexander were being truth distorters, and Paul removes them from the assembly of the church. But we learn now by the time 2 Timothy comes around that Hymenaeus didn't stop. He's still involved in being a truth distorter. And by the way, isn't it interesting that Paul names names? He is publicly naming the names of those who are truth distorters. Notice he describes them in verse 18 as men who've gone astray from the truth. He says they have veered off course. What were they saying in particular? They were saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, I want you to know something about me. If I was sitting in an audience and someone was teaching that the resurrection had already taken place, I would not be happy. You see, I am really looking forward to the resurrection because in the resurrection, I want to be six foot five. I want to have this incredible, incredible vertical leap. I want to be able to dribble a basketball equally well with either hand never looking. And I want to be able to sky with the ball and dunk it anytime I want. I'm looking forward to the resurrection. Also in the resurrection, I want to no longer have any weird hair growing out of my ears or out of my nose. See, you would have upset me 
if you'd said the resurrection was already past because I'm really looking forward to it. But that's what they were saying. They were saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we believe there's one of two possibilities. One possibility is, when they said that, is they were saying that the resurrection was really only spiritual. You know, when you trusted in Christ and you were spiritual resurrection to new life, that's all you're going to get. And if that's what they were teaching, they were basically kowtowing to Greek philosophy in that day. Because, see, Greek philosophy said that the body is evil, the soul is okay. And because they believed that the body was evil, to, to the Greek, the physical resurrection was absurd. Why would you have a physical resurrection? Because the body is inherently evil. And so if that's what they were teaching, they were simply bending to the culture. Now, you know, we have the same tendency to bend to the culture in our day. We're, 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 we're in danger of that. We're, we're in danger of bending to the culture's view of homosexual marriage, where we might begin to change the way that we understand Scripture because we're getting this cultural pressure. One thing I want to say about marriage God invented it, and what God has to say about it is what it is, no matter what the culture says. But our culture is always putting this pressure on us. For example, our culture would say there are many ways to God. It doesn't make any difference what you believe. We're all really serving the same God. Who cares what you believe? It's not really important. And we could take that pressure of the culture and begin to gear shift our interpretations so that's one possible way that they were communicating that the resurrection had already taken place, meaning it was just a spiritual one to begin with. Another possible meaning is that they were saying that, that Christ had already returned and, and you missed out, you know, you've been left behind. And, and we see uh, that kind of teaching actually in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, because there were people running around in that day saying, hey, the day of the Lord's already come, you missed it. Sorry, left behind. You know, it's interesting. When you look into Scripture about the tactics of truth distorters, we have some of their tactics described for us. In, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, it says that they adulterate the Word of God. The, the NIV translate, translates it this way. They distort the Word of God. That's what they do. They use the Word of God, but what they do is they just distort it. They, they twist it around. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17, it says that they peddle the Word of God. Literally, it means they merchandise it for profit. The New Living Translation there in 2 Corinthians 2, 17 says they preach just to make money just to make money. And notice the impact of all of this in verse 18. They upset the faith of some. The New Living Translation which says they undermined the faith of some individuals. And I've seen that happen. I have seen that happen. I have seen that happen. I have seen that happen. For over 30 years, 
there's certain kinds of truth distortion that I've had to address. One of the ones I've had to address more frequently than ever is the health and wealth teachers that are out there. You know, when we were reading in 1 Timothy 6, in in verse 5, it says that these truth distorters suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In the New Living Translation, it says, to them, religion is just a way to get rich. And that's what's been so interesting to me about health and wealth teaching over the years. You know, when you hear that, at first, that's very attractive to hear. It seems rather harmless at first blush, but it misrepresents true spirituality. In fact, it is ultimately insidious and very devastating to people. I've addressed this over the years. I remember uh, I did a series on the gospel of the good life. But here's basically what health and wealth teachers teach. They teach this. God wills and has made provision for every believer in Jesus Christ to be free from sickness and disease. And they would teach that God wills and has made provision for every believer in Jesus Christ to prosper financially. But the problem with all of that is it doesn't stand up to Scripture. But I have seen people, you talk about undermining the faith of people, I have seen this over the decades. I've seen people who start to embrace that teaching, and then they end up deflated and discouraged. I've actually seen this happen. I could name names of the individuals who experienced it who bought into this idea that God wills and has made provision for every believer in Jesus Christ to prosper financially, to become wealthy, and then they do everything that they say that you should do, and yet it doesn't come, and they end up being disillusioned from that. I've seen individuals who buy into the idea that God wills and has made provision for every believer in Jesus Christ to be free from sickness and disease, and when they've done everything they're supposed to do, whether it's themselves individually or some other person that they're praying for, and it doesn't happen, they don't get better, or there's a death. And then there's just this devastation, and I've had to go back and help pick up the pieces from that situation. There are truth distorters out there. And Paul wants us to know that they actually come on two levels. One is destructive doctrine, but there's a second level that he addresses in these verses. It's what I call adolescent attitudes. Adolescent attitudes. You know, we have four kids, and at one point we had three teenagers in our house. Oh, teenagers, what a fun thing to go through. And being a teenager is an interesting thing to be because you're in this transition from being a child to becoming a mature adult, but you are still transitioning. And one thing about teenagers is they've learned just enough to be disruptive. You know, they, they feel like they have arrived now. They, they know it all, and they're just puzzled about how come mom and dad don't get it. But do you know that there are also spiritual adolescents out there in the Christian community. And I believe that's what he's addressing in verse 14 when he says that we're not to wrangle about words at all. We're not to get into a 
word war. The, the New Living Translation says, stop fighting over words. In verse 16, he says, we should avoid worldly and empty chatter. We're just not to get into these meaningless disputes that are void of true spiritual content. We're not to be involved in theological wrangling where we just spiritually joust for the sake of jousting, where we have an inflated opinion of ourselves that we have deeper insights than everybody else, where we act like we know, where we thrive on controversy, where we crave word battles, particularly over theological minutiae, where there is what I like to call pseudo-intellectual wrangling. The whole goal of it is to show off that we know. These adolescent attitudes happen in the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, I have been in the stands at church softball games listening to people do this. They're just out to impress everybody with what they know. I have met people in my office who had adolescent attitudes. A number of years ago, there was a, a college student who came to the University of Oklahoma, total pagan, came to Christ, began to grow, attended Wildwood, began to learn about Jesus Christ and learn about the Bible here. After he'd been here about two years, he made an appointment, showed up in my office to point out to me all the things that I wasn't getting right theologically, what I didn't really know, and how wrong I was. See, one thing about adolescent attitudes is that they create a negative environment. And what happens when you have these adolescent attitudes afoot is that those who have them begin to criticize. They begin to nitpick. You know, one of the greatest American pastors ever was D.L. Moody. And like any pastor, any speaker, D.L. Moody would get these notes, you know, that came to him that were criticizing him for something that he was teaching or pointing out how wrong he was on some small point. And often, when you get those notes, they come to you anonymous, you know. Just want to point out how you're off track. Signed, nobody, you know. And I've gotten those also. One time, Moody got one of those notes with a single word on it, just the word fool. And later on, Moody said this about that note. He said, I have received many critical letters where the writer left off their name. But this is the first time I received a note where they left off the message and just signed their name. Fool. Adolescent attitudes. And when I've run across that, I've often said they need a good dose of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 where it says, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, for I delight in these things. Now, whether we're talking about the level of destructive doctrine 
or the level of adolescent attitudes, they always bring to the church community negative ramifications. Look at verse 14. He says, these things are useless and it leads to the ruin of the hearers. And the word that is translated ruin is the word in the original language, katastrophe. Listen to the word, katastrophe. We get our word catastrophe from it. It leads to spiritual catastrophe. Verse 16, these lead to further ungodliness. The NIV translates it, those who indulge in it become more and more ungodly, not more like Jesus Christ. And especially when it comes to destructive doctrine at its worst, verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. And this, in the original, is the actual word from which we get the word gangrene. This kind of teaching is like spiritual cancer. Now, cancer wants to spread and it wants to infect other members. And that's what this kind of teaching will do in the church. Now, all of that is just looking at the issue, okay? Spend a lot of time looking at the issue to understand the importance of the right choice that we're called to make here. And the right choice is found in verse 15, and that is that we choose to be a diligent workman. Look at verse 15. He says to Timothy, to you and to me, be diligent. Same exact phrase is used in this letter in chapter 4 and verse 9 when Paul says to Timothy there, make every effort to come to me soon. Same exact word. In, in verse 21 of the same chapter, make every effort to come to me before winter. Same exact phrase. Be diligent Make every effort. Pull out all the stops, we might say, to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. See, men and women, the goal, and I share this with the students at the seminary, the goal is not to impress people. The goal is to get God's approval. And we do that, he says in verse 15, by accurately handling the word of truth. Literally, it says, cutting it straight. Cutting straight the word of truth. This is a verb that just comes from the, the original language word to cut and then the word for straight. The word straight in Greek is orthos, O-R-T-H-O-S. We get our word orthopedic from it because they're taking a limb, an orthopedist does, and he straightens the limb. We get our word orthodoxy from this. Doxy refers to beliefs. Ortho just means straight beliefs. And this word would be used to describe a mason who had to cut a stone and he would want to cut the stone straight so that it would be square. It would be used of a bricklayer who would lay bricks and he would want to cut those bricks straight. It would, it would be used of a tent maker. And by the way, Paul was a tent maker. 
And you know that they made tents out of animal skins. You ever looked at animal skins and the odd shapes that they're on? And you want to make a tent out of that? Well, you have to take the animal skins and you, you cut it straight so that it fits together properly. And we need to choose to be a diligent workman. We need to get it straight and we need to give it straight. And if we're going to get it straight and we're going to give it straight, that means we need to have diligent study. We need to make every effort. We need to read what the Scripture says. We need to look at the historical background of it. We need to do careful, accurate interpretation. We need to understand the context. We need to understand the clear intent of the author. We need to see how it meshes together with the rest of Scripture. We need to find principles of practical application. And I want you to know, as a teaching pastor... That's part of my goal. That's part of the way I seek to design messages. And part of the reason why I'm so committed to that is there are a lot of aberrations of verse 15 out there in churches. I want to just share a couple of them with you. These are, these are messages that are out there that aren't in line with what he's saying here about choosing to be a diligent workman. One aberration is what I call the salvation-only sermon. Now, I don't mean by that that you can't have a sermon that's only about the topic of salvation. What I mean by salvation-only sermon, and I grew up in an environment that was like this, is that every sermon was just about salvation. And, and, and it was just repeating the same thing over and over again, always using the same verses. It always sounded the same to me. And you know what the impact is of that? disinterest, and boredom. That's the way it got to be for me. Another aberration is what I like to call an airplane sermon. An airplane sermon. That's where you open the Bible and there's a text of Scripture that you have there. You start at that text and then the speaker starts to just sort of fly around from there, you know? And you get a little, uh, some pop culture concepts that you throw in. There's a few quotes, a heartwarming story, and then you come back and you land where you started. And when you have a sermon like that, you leave famished spiritually. And then there is what I would like to call another aberration is, is a mishanded truth sermon, mishandled truth sermon. This is where a speaker has a personal agenda. And what they're going to do as they follow their personal agenda is they're going to proof text. They're going to find a verse here, find a verse there, find a verse there. They're going to yank it out of context. They're going to misapply it. And frankly... That's exactly what those who promote health and wealth teaching do. And what you end up with that kind of a sermon is spiritual indigestion. And I want you to know that accurate, practical preaching is, the, listen to me, please, it's the hardest work I have ever done. And just recently, I have labored greatly trying to get my arms around the, the second part here of chapter 2. You can just ask my wife. It's been hard. I've made every effort to understand it. We need to be diligent workmen, which means we shoot straight on biblical issues, even if it's unpopular. It means that we do not surrender truth, even if we're pressured to compromise it. It means we don't rationalize our own attitudes and our own behavior in light of what Scripture says. But I want you to know something. Verse 15 
applies to more than pastors and preachers. Verse 15 is directed to every follower of Jesus Christ. Men and women, we are to get it straight. We are to give it straight. And when you get into the Word, the Word gets into you. Now, you might have been thinking of this question. Why does God even allow truth distorters to exist? Why does God allow there to be destructive doctrines out there? Why does God allow people to have adolescent attitudes? And I think there's an answer for that question. And that answer is it drives us all to be diligent workmen. You know that it is against the backdrop of destructive doctrines that all the classic creeds of church history were developed? It drives us back into the Word. If we're going to be spiritually steadfast, anyone want to be spiritually steadfast? Yeah. We need to make right choices. And the first one is choose to be a diligent workman. Now, you know we have to end with some life response. And this life response is going to be pretty simple. This is what we need to do, all right? You all ready? Be a Berean. Be a Berean. Acts 17, 11. It says, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they, the Bereans, received the message with great eagerness, and, here we go, examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul, if what Paul said was true. Can you imagine that? The apostle Paul, and they were looking at the scriptures every day because they wanted to be diligent workmen. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. It's a word that we all need to be reminded of. And we all, if we want to be spiritually steadfast, we all need to choose to be a diligent workman. Father, I would pray we would all be Bereans because ultimately we want to honor you. And we pray these things in your name. 